Well, so we return to the book of Leviticus. I don't know if you've missed the book of Leviticus or not. I know I used to uh, consider the book of Leviticus a portion of scripture that would be handy to read when you're fighting insomnia. Um, because it just seemed like, oh, just all this repetitive law code things. And, and when I read it, I just saw, you know, again and again, particularly, particularly those first few chapters. And that probably sets you off, you know, with, exp- with low expectations as, as you see each of the uh, types of sacrifices that are to be offered up in very specific ways. And many of them overlap in the way that they're to be done. And I'm going to see if this pack is ready to function now. All right, ready to switch over? Great. But as I have uh, studied this, uh, and I I think I related this to some of you before, um, having preached through Genesis and then Exodus, I thought, okay, where to next? And and, um, Pastor Mike keeps... forward. Nothing else seems to uh, be uh, obvious. And so I thought, okay, Leviticus will take a rather cursory look. We'll just kind of take it in big chunks and, and look at what you know, big things we need to draw from that. And then I got into it and found out that there's perhaps more there than I realized that, that uh, is worth spending some time on. So I hope you find it beneficial as I have. Um, but we will continue. Now we're coming to this, this place uh, where we are... Um, we're concluding a, a subdivision of, a, of another subdivision uh, in the book, which is part of God's uh, moral code for his people, Israel. And so he is really describing, the label I've given this, is what it looks like for, for people to be his people, to be God's people. What does that look like in the daily living, in the society? And he was laying out for Israel very specific expectations because they lived among all these nations that were worshiping all these invented gods, deities, uh, systems that, that were untrue, that were unhelpful, that were actually very harmful. And these people had embraced everything but the one true and living God. And so he's revealed himself to the Israelite people in order to reveal himself through the Israelite people to the nations around, that mankind might know the one true and living God. And to know him rightly, not to have invented ideas about him, but to know him rightly as he truly is, to know his character, to know what he is like. And so their society is to reflect that. Well, that has always been a challenge throughout history, has it not? It seems that culture is always contrary It's almost as if there's some oppositional force unseen that is working against God. Because it seems to be this universal and ongoing problem of societies being pushed, manipulated, shaped, molded, twisted to embrace every value contrary to those of the one true and living God revealed in scripture what could that be and what is our role if society as a whole is rejecting 
the values and the very character of the one true and living God? What does it look like to be God's people in that society? Does it mean we'll be popular? Does it mean that we will fit in? Will we be embraced and loved and appreciated? Perhaps not. But what is it that God expects of his people, and does he have a right to expect it? Let's consider. Are we saying the, the song, To Be God's People, uh, that, that hymn before this, and I realize that that's less familiar to some, and it seems like this, you know, kind of out of who knows where, thing for us to sing, very formal sounding, very stately. In fact, the music was composed by the classical composer uh, uh, Haydn. And so it's, it's beautiful, beautiful harmonies, but we're not used to a lot of that these days in our regular singing and our regular music. But it's a carefully written text set to a beautiful setting of music. And with a point, and I hope that you are reading and considering those, those words, because it does talk about what it is for us to be God's people in this world. Well, we want to look at what God revealed to the people of Israel, and then, of course, we will have a look at what the implications may be for us today. So we, we, as we have been doing in our Old Testament studies, we try to understand the text in the there and then context. What did it mean at that time and that place for those people? And then we consider what is transferable to us in our time today in the New Testament. So converting Old Testament to New Testament. We have to be careful about this, right? Because we are not Israel. The church is not Israel. Let's be very clear about that because there are those that are theologically confused, I would say, about that, who suggest that the church is the new Israel. The church has replaced Israel, and therefore they like to look at the Old Testament and just whatever seems good, embrace it for ourselves very directly, very literally, those things, those promises made to Israel, those instructions given to Israel, and just try to apply them across today. And when it's inconvenient, when it doesn't seem to make sense for New Testament believers, then, then they just arbitrarily switch to spiritualizing those things in the Old Testament and say that this is an allegory and this stands for that and so on and so forth. But there's no way to guide that system that can be trusted. It's inventive and arbitrary. But what we see is that God told Abraham, I'm going to use you, I'm going to make a great nation of you, and of this great nation I'm going to do certain things, and these are my promises to you and those who will come from you, very literally the nation of Israel. And he made his covenant permanent and timeless. That was the, if you can recall, the whole event of, of God telling Abraham to take all these sacrificial animals and they were all cut in half and they were laid apart and the, and the blood ran into this trench in the middle and God put Abraham into a trance during which he saw God himself come and pass through the parts. This is all in Genesis. God alone did this. Well, that was a well-known custom in the time and in the society of a blood covenant where Usually, both parties would pass through. They would, terms of a treaty would be established, and the verification, the ratification, the sealing of that treaty was through the ceremony of passing between the divided sacrificial animals. And the indication of that, the significance of it was that the people who passed through between these animals were saying, if, if I do not fulfill 
all of my responsibilities in this treaty, may this be my fate. These animals that were lying in two parts like this. Well, interestingly, when God made his covenant with Abraham, God alone passed through. He did not give Abraham that role. It's a one-sided covenant. God said, I am going to do this for you. Therefore, the people of Israel could never fail God in such a way as to nullify the Abrahamic covenant. It's entirely on God. So we cannot replace Israel. But we learn in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul made it very clear that we have been grafted in. Where you have the, if, if Israel were a tree, that it's being fed and nourished, caused to flourish by God. Just like a, just like a horticulturalist would, could cut a notch into the, into the side of a, of a fruit tree. You can take an orange tree and cut a notch into the side of it and cut a, a branch from a lemon tree and wedge that in there and, and wrap it all up and you put fresh quick against fresh quick and you wrap it up and you continue to feed and nourish that thing, then that will become a part of the tree. And so now you have lemons growing on an orange tree. Right? That's the image that's used for the church today. We are grafted in. So we benefit from many of the promises that God made to Israel. But we, we are continuing to draw benefit from that. But we are not a replacement. Right? So that's all significant because when we look at Old Testament studies, we have to look at, okay, these were the things to understand. This was for the context of Israel at that time. Now we look in the New Testament, in what ways are we the same and what ways are we different? What do we see that perhaps even goes above and beyond the covenant for Israel? There are things in the revelation of God and his instructions to Israel that are specific for them, for their time, for their context, and then there are other things that he is delivering to them that he had delivered to Adam and Eve before and that he has reiterated in the New Testament again. So there are things that are universal and timeless that have nothing to do with the covenants. They have everything to do with God and his very character, his very nature, his very values. So we need to evaluate the role of each aspect as we look at this. So we look first to Israel, and we'll see here in Leviticus chapter 20, we're picking up in verse 10. Now, we, have, we started in chapter 18. This was kind of the beginning of this subsection of a subsection. Uh, the beginning of chapter 18, God laid out moral standards, particularly regard to sexuality and witchcraft and idolatry. And it's interesting that those things are so always tied so closely together in God's word. And so he laid out relationships that were unacceptable because he wanted his people to live in accordance with and an acknowledgement of his created order and his ordination for certain relationships. He ordained the relationship of marriage. He designed for it to be a certain way. And he wanted it to be preserved. It's interesting today that we have in our society such, again, as I have already said, such an effort to work completely against God's values in these things. Just, just before the, uh, the changeover last year uh, of Congress in America, where the, the lower house, called the House of Representatives, came into the control of 
more the more conservative side of politics in America. Just prior to losing that control, those on the far left pushed through a piece of legislation during the, what they call the lame duck session, during the time when people are hardly paying attention because the election has taken place, what's happening next has been decided, but they have not yet quite finished their time. So they squeeze through just these insidious evil legislations during that last moment that they have the opportunity. And hardly anything was said in the public for people to know about it. They pushed through this piece of legislation called, very ironically, the Respect for Marriage Act. But they've completely redefined marriage in this legislation. It is absolutely not the Respect for Marriage. It is absolutely putting into law the inability, the making illegal, essentially, for anyone to stand up and say marriage is as God defined it. It's wicked. It's all around us. We need to consider what God's standards were for Israel, what his standards are for us, and what does it mean for us to be God's people in this place. Well, we see Leviticus chapter 20, after, after chapter 18 laying out some of these things, then chapter 19 continues to discuss other relationships within society, other expectations. And actually we see this, really these laws, rather than being oppressive, they're actually uh, really protective. You see throughout, especially the chapter 19 of Leviticus, you see God's care, his concern for the weaker members of society, for the people who could very well be taken advantage of, and he defends them. He protects them. We looked at that before. And then we looked at the first part of, of Leviticus chapter 20, where, again, he talks specifically about, um, about idolatry and witchcraft. And, and so we addressed that before. So now we're picking up where it comes back around now, chapter 20, verse 10. It kind of loops back to where it's almost an overlay of the beginning of chapter 18, where these uh, sexuality, morality rules are laid out. Now in chapter 20, these verses describe what God's penalties were for violations of those, of those laws. And again, we're reminded, this is the context of Israel. Israel was a theocracy. God was the head. He wanted them to be unique people as a nation among all the other nations. We do not take everything that we see here in God's instructions for the nation of Israel to immediate, literal application for us today in the New Testament era. Now, having said that, I don't want to read these verses out loud because this is pretty ugly material, the things that are being discussed there. So I'm going to ask you to... Open your text of the Bible. I hope that everyone has it. I'm not putting it on the screen. You all have a copy on device or in your hand. Look at Leviticus chapter 20. And this is like you're in a classroom now, okay? Your assignment for the next couple of minutes is to read carefully Leviticus chapter 20, verses 10 through 21. Verses 10 through 21. All right? 
I'm just going to allow you a little bit. Process carefully the words that you see there. Interpret what the relationships are. They're expressed in certain ways, but you can interpret to be, oh, yeah, that means sister-in-law. Oh, that means stepmother. All right? So just be careful and think, read it carefully for yourselves. Okay? And it'll also be clear by this that I'm not making any of this up as a matter of my own opinion or preference or religious tradition. This is just God's word. Read it for yourself. you're finished, if you just make eye contact with me, I'll be able to tell when we're all essentially done. Right, I think most of us are there. You can see it's a little bit R-rated, which is why I prefer not to read it out loud. I didn't know if we would have you know, any children in the room. It looks like we pretty much don't, but nonetheless, um, this is also on Zoom. So just kind of want to be careful with dealing with some of this particular material because not everything is age-appropriate for everybody. Do you see very stern language here, do you not? God's standards seem to us today in our very nice, tolerant society to be rather harsh. But I didn't write that. Pastor Mike didn't write that. This wasn't invented by leaders of Christian religion. This is inspired by God. This was written thousands of years ago by God's direction. So we have a little bit of a window into God's view of certain sexual relationships. And that's what that means, of course, when it says uncover, to uncover the nakedness of it implies sexual intercourse. So let's just kind of 
identify the nature of some of these, uh, just give them labels a little bit, right? So first of all, we see uh, immorality with a death penalty in verses 10 through 16. And then actually that, that uh, we should kind of tack on there, verse 27, I can, I can read that for you. You can look that there if you want as well. It says, a man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely put, be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones, their blood shall be upon them. Now, those statements also, their blood shall be upon them or the guilt will be upon them. That basically means they made the choice to do the thing that God considers evil. They get what they deserve. That's pretty much God's very frank, very direct way of saying they deserve what they're getting because they made the choice to do the wrong thing. So we can add on verse 27 to that. So this is immorality with a death penalty. God is making it very clear that for his people Israel, for them to be his people in this world, to reflect his character, his values, his created order, his design, certain things were to be not tolerated at all. Zero tolerance. Death penalty has a a rather powerful way of motivating people to not commit certain infringements. So this was something that he just left no room for. It's interesting that earlier in the chapter where there's discussion of death penalty for those who would, um, who would seek out those that are mentioned in the last verse there, that would seek out those who are necromancers or mediums. These, these are, he's talking about seances. He's talking about Ouija boards. He's talking about uh, you know, any ancient form of those types of things where people are calling upon the dead for wisdom, advice, direction, help of any sort. He's the only true and living God. These, anything else that anyone appeals to is idolatry. And he was leaving no room for that within the society. They needed to know and preserve the reality that he's the one true and living God, the only one to be consulted at a spiritual level. And so the penalty there is death also for those. It's quite clear that this is something not to be tolerated. So, so there we have immorality with a death, death penalty. Then you have uh, in verses 17 and 18, you can glance back there again and see the context of that, verses eight, 17 and 18. Now, these are relational violations that resulted in excommunication, being cut off from, from, the, from being seen by the people. Basically means they're put out of the society. So God is not just entirely, he's not just capricious, he's not cruel, he's not vindictive, he's not just trying to be as harsh as he can be. He actually gauges the crime and what type of punishment is appropriate for that. So these are, these are relational violations. These are things that God does not want for his people Israel. They, they are therefore probably not necessarily entirely timeless and universal, uh, in fact, we can see that this is a change. Verse 17, uh, this relationship with a half-sister is a change from previous rules because Abraham married his half-sister, Sarai. God did not judge that relationship. That was ex- acceptable at the time. But now time is passing, and God has his reasons for changing that rule for his people Israel. This points back to um, one of the questions that some people like to, uh, to use to try to stump uh, Christians who accept God's record of creation as written and, um, and say, well, the, 
where did, where did Cain get his wife? Well, he married his sister. Or possibly a niece. But somebody married the sisters. And we recoil at that today. Right? Oh, that's awful. That's immoral. Well, now it is. But that's because God changed the rules about those things. And why did he do that? Well, it points back to the reality of the science of creation. God made perfect human beings. They were flawless in their DNA. Brothers and sisters could marry. There would be no negative results. Perfect children. But because of the curse of sin, over time, flaws have been introduced and continue to be introduced and replicated and become more seriously in the, trans, in the passing on of the DNA code from human beings from one to another. And when there's a flaw in one parent and the same kind of flaw in the other parent, then typically the children have even bigger problems. And so God in his wisdom at one point changed the rules to say, no, the relationships need to be more distant. Because God, before any scientist ever understood, God knew how we are made. God knew genetic flaws would be compounded and create greater problems if people were marrying closely in relation to each other. And so God distanced people in order to enrich the genetic field and the genetic pool for them. God knew this. And this seems, this seems funny, perhaps, for you. Maybe you've never dealt with this to think of science with the Bible. But in reality, science and the Bible go hand in hand. They are in no way in contradiction to one another. So God knew how he made people. He knew about RNA and DNA before anybody understood that. Because he had built it into us. And so he gave these restrictions for his own reasons. He didn't explain it to his people. He just said, this is my law. Follow it. I'm God. I'm Yahweh. You're God. Obey me. Because he knew what could happen. Of course, the other part of the science of that is, if you didn't already put two and two together to get five, is that if you have someone who has a genetic flaw, and that tends to be congenital, then you have someone who comes from a different family line who doesn't have that flaw. Then when they come together, the tendency, and God's goodness, God's grace, the tendency is for the correct DNA to override the faulty DNA. And so that keeps things from just completely falling apart. We'd really be a mess today if it weren't for that gracious provision. But So God is being gracious to people by establishing even these very particular moral laws. So he distinguishes between certain ones that deserve death penalty, that have no tolerance whatsoever amongst his people, and then those where he is saying, this just is not the way I want you to live as my people. And so excommunication is the result. And then we have in verses 19 through 21, (coughs) excuse me, Verse 19 through 21, we have relational violations that resulted just in, in barrenness, where God is saying, and again, perhaps this is just his scientific wisdom, where he is saying, I'm, I will not allow people in this relationship to reproduce. The punishment will be they won't have children. 
So there you have it, verses 19 through 21. Uh, aunts, uh, even, you know, aunts and uncles, even by marriage, as opposed to being blood-related, he just wants to show respect for the sanctity of marriage as he has designed, and he wants consistency to recognize people as being part of the family and relatives and therefore not to be engaged with in that way. So God has set up his standards. Now we see in verses 22 through 26, you, pa- you stopped at 21, I'll read this portion. Verses 22 through 26, we see covenant failures that would result in national expulsion. Okay, so we have the, the first three are, are individual, right? Immorality that brings the death penalty for the individuals involved. Relational violations that result in excommunication for the people involved. Relational violations that result in barrenness for those people and those relationships. And by the way, God is gracious enough. We see in other places, even in Deuteronomy, we see an application throughout the history of Israel that God did make other distinctions as well, where you see that if so-and-so has this relationship with so-and-so, both of them shall be put to death. But God also provides for the situation where a person has been violated against their will they do not suffer the same judgment as the person who violated, who violated them. Right? God is good and gracious. And he makes distinctions. So verses 22 through 26, now we see these covenant failures that would result in national expulsion. So God is saying, as he did in the first verses of this chapter, again in verses 1 through 9, he said, Those, if, the, if the people who engage in pursuit of mediums, witches, necromancers, and so on... If, if the people do not judge them, the God says, I will get involved directly. I will judge them. I will destroy them. And I will destroy those who failed to bring the judgment. So God's very serious about these things, right? Well, now we're ta- he's talking to the people of Israel and saying, now if you as a nation fail to enforce these things, you allow your society to degrade and to mimic those evil nations around you, then there will be judgment for the nation. Again, he doesn't divorce himself from the nation. He doesn't say, you're no longer my chosen people. His promise to Abraham stands against every challenge. But, he said, you're living in this land, this promised land, as a privilege, as a blessing, and if you obey the covenant, if you live by my code, you will stay in the land, you will, you will live rich lives, I will bless you, protect you, cause you to prosper. But if you violate my covenant, I will remove my protection, I will remove my blessing, and you won't even be allowed to stay in this land. If you abuse the privilege, it will be lost. And we see ultimately that that is exactly what happened. The northern tribes, after the kingdom divided, the ten northern tribes were very wicked very quickly, and the whole list of kings, every one of them is evil, 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 leading the people into all forms of idolatry and perversion. And so God sends the Assyrians to come and destroy them, to, to take them over. The tribes below, the Benjamin and Judah, the other two tribes, as well as the Levites for the, for the most part, Uh, remained a little more faithful. They kept having corrections. You have a bad king and then a good king, and a bad king and a good king, and another good king and then a bad king. But there was at least some, some repentance that took place along the way, so they lasted longer in the land. But then finally, God sent the Babylonians to haul them away. So God keeps his promises. He's warning them now, early on, what to expect. 
So verses 22 through 26, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. It's rather graphic language. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. Now what is that? How does that inform us about these moral rules? These things are not just for the people of Israel, are they? God is saying here, if you violate these things, the land will vomit you out. I will have you expelled just like I am expelling the nations that there before you because they did these things. So in other words, God holds even this, these pagan nations to this standard saying, well, these things are evil across the board. They're just evil. It doesn't matter who's doing them. It's not just for Israel. It's anyone who does these things. And these people have done it to the extreme, and therefore I am driving them out. I am having them destroyed. He told Abraham this 400 years before. When God promised Abraham that this land would be for his descendants, he said, you're going to... family is going to be in exile under the rule and enslavement by another people for 400 years. And sure enough, they went to Egypt and they were there as, became slaves 400 years. But God told Abraham, after the 400 years, I will bring them out, I will bring them to this land, and I will destroy and drive out the nations that are there. And the reason God allowed that extra 400 years, he even says to Abraham, is because they have not yet completely fulfilled their wickedness. In other words, God was giving them 400 years of opportunity for repentance and change, but in his wisdom, in his omniscience, he knew that they were just going to degrade and degrade and degrade until they came so completely filthy and violent and disgusting and wicked, that there would be nothing left but to wipe them out that could not be fixed. But he gave them 400 years of opportunity. What a gracious God. So now he's saying, don't do like them. They've done all these things, and that's why I'm destroying them. It's a clear warning, but it also tells us something about what is universal and timeless and God's values regarding sexuality, idolatry, witchcraft. Verse 24, But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am Yahweh your God who has separated you from the people. So God is saying, I sanctified you. I set you apart to be unique. Verse 25, you shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. Remember, this was all part of the code that he has just laid out before them in the previous chapters. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. I've given you my rules for how to live. Verse 26, you shall be holy to me. Now he's, con- he's challenging them to consecrate themselves. He's sanctified them. He has chosen them and set them apart from the nations. Now he's saying, now you need to consecrate yourselves. You need to dedicate yourselves to me. You shall be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy. 
and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. So there we see covenant failures could result in national expulsion. God warned them that the land would vomit them out if they followed the pattern of those who were there before them. Well, so how do we draw this across? How do we bring this to us today? Let's consider that God reiterated his moral expectations for his people, the church. We are his people. Well, I've stated very dogmatically that the church is not Israel. We do not replace Israel. We are, for this time, also God's people. It includes those who have turned to faith in their Messiah among the Jewish people. But now the umbrella is larger And God calls his people, people of all the nations who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. As as Jesus foretold even during his ministry, he kept trying to get the idea across to his Jewish audience. I have sheep that are not of this fold. Again and again, he dropped these very obvious indicators that he was here not just to be the Messiah for the people of Israel, but he's here to be the Savior of the world. That was the plan all along. So it wasn't something that God went, you know, Oh, well, the Jewish people went and killed my Messiah, so that's it. I'm done with them. I'm going to replace them. No, it was always part of God's plan that the Israelite people would produce the Savior of the world and that the Savior would be here for all the world and not just for them. It's not a change of plan. It's always been his plan. So we see now that there are certain things that God does expect for his people today, even though we do not live by all of the particulars of the national code of the people of Israel according to the Mosaic law. There are things that still apply, things that reflect God's created order, for instance. These were supposed to be able to come up individually, but I guess conversion from one format to another didn't, didn't work. So you've got the whole outline there for you. We see moral standards, first of all, that reflect God's created order. Let's look at uh, Romans chapter 1, if you would, please. You'll turn in your own copy to Romans chapter 1. Now, this is a little bit of a longer passage, but I think it's worth having this entire context. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 30. And this points out this reality that, that God's moral standards reflect his created order. In other words, when people violate certain moral things, what it really means is that they are rejecting the rule of their creator. And we see that explained here by Paul in this, in this passage. Doing things contrary to God's created order according to his design is a rejection of his rulership as the creator. Seems foolish on its face. But this is what it says, Romans 1, beginning of verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You get that? Do you experience that today? Do you see that in the world around us today? The suppression of truth? The fact that someday somebody could come back to the recording of my message here today and use that to throw me in jail according to certain laws that are being pushed through in our society. Suppression of truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them 
I mean, look at the world. I mean, really look at it. Look at the amazing structure of the plants and the animals and the ecosystems. And people want to suggest that God was not involved. This is all just the result of a bunch of happy accidents. Are you kidding me? How ignorant, how blind. This is the suppression of truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because he's shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became, what? Fools. I have three PhDs. I know that there's no God. Fool. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is idolatry. Saying, instead of worshiping the God who created all things, I'm going to use my own hands and carve a little piece of wood or stone that looks kind of like a bird, and I'm going to put it on my pedestal, and I'm going to worship that. Really? This is what people have done throughout the ages. Therefore, the judgment... Verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. This is part of the judgment being given over to these dishonorable passions is part of the judgment itself. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. A debased mind cannot even rightly evaluate good from evil. It's like Genesis chapter 6 before the flood. All of their thoughts and deeds were all evil continually. Hmm. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil disobedient to parents. 
God's moral standards, some of them reflect his created order. Many of these things, all these things listed here, when people violate these things, that means that they are rejecting the rule of their creator. That's timeless and universal. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Let's look at that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul writes to Corinth, they are believers in one of the most wicked cities in the Roman and the Greco-Roman era. Their, their idolatrous temples were famous for their ritualistic prostitution. He says to these believers in that context, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, here's good news. The light's coming on. But you were washed. You were sanctified. Remember how God said to his people Israel, I've sanctified you. I've set you apart. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Thank God that he can redeem anyone. No matter what the history no, no matter what the previous offenses were, no matter how ugly, how dark, how black, how shameful they might be, he's talking to people here who lived in a society where that would be their history. Most of these believers, probably, prior to their coming to Christ, violated many of these things. So were some of you, he says. And yet... What, what a wonderful truth. You've been washed. All that filth, all that dirtiness, all that guilt, all that shame, washed. Sanctified, set apart, made different. Praise God for his grace. When we encounter people who are, who are ensnared in even perhaps the wickedest lifestyle, Let's remember that by God's grace, they too can be washed. They can be sanctified. They can become God's children, justified in the name of Jesus Christ. You remember the theological word justified, right? Declared not, not guilty. The, the, the record wiped away. Made clean. Scot-free. Thank God for his grace. God continues to uphold his standards that represent his created order, his design. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. So contrary to the law that was passed in America months ago, God is saying, yes, I want you to honor marriage as I define it. Everyone should acknowledge 
this standard. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This is New Testament language, folks. This is not the Old Testament God talking to Israel under the law code and everything like that. This is New Testament. says, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Some things are timeless and universal. We also see lifestyles that reflect God's holy character. Just as God distinguished for the Israelite people things that were absolutely not to be tolerated, and then there are things that he says, well, this is what I want to characterize your society as a reflection of my character. And so there are other standards that are just higher standards, perhaps, in some cases. So we see God's expectations for a lifestyle that reflects God's holy character. So this is a similar testimony uh, writing to Titus. It says, we ourselves, Titus 3, verses 3 through 8, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. We, we No merit of our own. We did nothing to attract God's attention, in other words, to make him want to pardon us. No. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing. There's that word again. That must be so refreshing right, for the person who feels that their life is so stained. By sin and guilt and shame. The word comes up again and again. Washing. The washing of regeneration. What's regeneration? To, to, bring, to bring about new life. It's the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does a work in people's lives that no human being, no system, no religion can do. It's the work of God by his mercy, by his grace, to wash, to regenerate, to renew. Verse 6, this Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly. He's not even stingy with the Holy Spirit and his work in our life. He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, Paul says, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So by God's mercy and grace, he justifies, he washes, he regenerates, he renews, he gives the Holy Spirit freely to help the believer who has now accepted God's lordship in their life by faith in Jesus Christ, their Savior. And now he says, you need to insist on this. For the sake of the believers, you need to insist on these things. That we need to live in a way that we are being carefully devoting of ourselves to good works. To devote, that's consecration again, isn't it? So we're called upon as God's children, as his people today in this world, to consecrate ourselves, to devote ourselves to doing right things. 
to doing the good things to avoid all those evil things. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Here again, we see this inclusion, the fact that now God calls us his people. Peter writes to a mixed audience. There are believing Jewish people and there are believing Gentile people. And he writes to them together saying, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that he may proclaim the excellencies of him that you, rather, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. That's especially true for the Gentiles that he's writing to, right? They're just considered the others. In the Jewish mind in the Old Testament, there are the Jewish people, and then there's just everybody else. There's us, and it's all of them. The goyim, just the other peoples. So he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, in other words, don't consider this your home. Don't get too comfortable where you are. This is not where your loyalty belongs. Your nationality is not where you live right now. Your true nationality is heaven. So as sojourners, as exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, in other words, the other people who don't know God. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, here's a purpose statement, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, because this world is so upside down, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's a purpose for us today as God's people, for the church today. Just as God wanted the people of Israel then to represent him among the nations. And let's go to the points to be considered so that I don't get behind there. God's purpose for Israel was representation among the nations, right? A nation that represented the one true and living God, his character, his values, his nature, his rules. Because he, after all, is the creator. He's the one who wrote the manual because he designed it all. Right? And so he's revealing through his people Israel these things for the benefit of all the nations. But likewise, God's purpose for the church, for his people today, is representation throughout the nations. We do not stand apart now in a way that is recognized by the world as a separate nation, as a separate you know, ethnicity. But we are now his people wherever he places us throughout the nations. And the the goal and the purpose for us is the same. To represent the one true and living and loving God to the people around us. And so there are expectations for how we should live in order to achieve this. To to represent him rightly as, as Peter charged the church there. Live in such a way that when they want to bring charges against you, when they want to accuse you, what they find in your life is good works. And that might point them to the Savior. So God sanctifies his people and he expects them to consecrate themselves in return. He sets us apart 
and he expects us then to devote ourselves. If we fail to uphold God's standards in our personal lives, how then do we represent him to the watching world? If when we get in those conversations, though they may be very inconvenient, they may make us feel hot around the collar, they may make our, our blood you know, get hotter, they might make our pulse rise because we feel like, oh no, if I speak the truth right now, I'm going to be in trouble. If I speak the truth right now, I'm going to lose this person as a potential friend. If I speak the truth right now, everybody in this office is going to look at me like a weirdo. We're called to be salt and light in this world. But if the salt loses its saltiness, what good does it do for preservation? If the light loses its shininess, how does it dispel darkness? So what does it look like for us to be God's people in this place? We should be reflecting his goodness in the way that we live and the values that we embrace. We are not the people of Israel. This is not a theocracy. He does not call us to take violent action to uphold these same standards that he gave to Israel at the time. He calls us to live by his code. He calls us to make the right choices in our lives. And when people wonder why, when people ask why, we can say, it's because I know the true and living God. I know his values. I've seen in his revealed word what his design is. I acknowledge him as my creator, as my Lord. I want to obey him faithfully. He has saved my soul, promised me eternity. I want to return my devotion to him and the way that I live. And then we can share Christ. We don't, have to, we don't have to try to do any violence to anyone. We don't have to try to ruin anyone else's life. That's not what God has called us as his people to do today in the church. He's called us to live among, throughout the nations, and represent him by the way that we live. But we have to be faithful to do it. We have to ask him to give us the grace, the courage, the strength, the wisdom, the love to handle those conversations, to make those choices, to be consistent. What we cannot do, what we must not do, is embrace the wicked values of the society around us because that's the easy thing, because that's the convenient thing. We must be different. We have been sanctified, and we are expected to be consecrated. And it's for the sake of the gospel. It's not for the sake of religion. It's so that others might come to know the one true and living God who loves them and who offered the Savior to make it possible for them to be forgiven of all their guilt, to be washed, regenerated, renewed, and brought into the family of God and given eternal life. What a great privilege and responsibility we have to be God's people in this place. Let's pray for his help.